This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. for this next guest of mine, Jennifer Jones Austin, CEO and Executive Director of FPWA. She is a fourth generation leader of faith and social justice fighting for equity. Uh, as the CEO of the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, uh, she is steeped in the work of anti-poverty policy and advocacy, uh, and she collaborates with over 170 member organizations and faith partners uh, to lead and secure monumental changes in social policy uh, to strengthen and empower the disenfranchised and marginalized. Today, however, she is here in her capacity as the chair, Madam Chair, if you will, of the New York City Racial Justice Commission, the first of its kind in the nation created to develop ballot proposals to revise the city's charter to dismantle structural racism in government functions, ensuring equity for black, indigenous, and other persons of color. Madam Chair, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. You have no idea. The pleasure is all mine. I am so excited, so thrilled, so honored to be on your show. Let me first say to you, you know, happy anniversary, because this is your anniversary month, isn't it? It is indeed. Thank you so much. That is correct. Happy anniversary. (laughs) And uh, it has just been an honor and uh, a true gift, uh, a great learning experience to, to work with you over the course of the last several months on this commission. So thanks for having me in my official capacity uh, as a member of the commission. Thank you. The pleasure is truly mine. And and you and I have gotten a chance to see up close and personal how the sausage gets made when it comes to these types of policies. But most of the people in the audience, quite frankly, many of them live outside of New York City. In fact, most of them live outside of New York City. And they may not have any clue as to how amazing of a task this actually was. Can you explain to the audience? And yes, audience, I'm full disclosure. I am a commissioner on this commission. Uh, So just know I'm biased and I'm owning it. So you, now you know it. <laughs> so okay, can you talk with us, Madam Chair, uh, about why this commission was brought together and, and its purpose and why that is so seminal for what is happening in our country right now? Yes. So first, let me say that I am I'm, I'm excited that uh, your listeners in the main are not New Yorkers. And that's because the work that we've done here is not just value add. For New York, for New York City, it, you know, it has the potential to benefit and impact people throughout this nation, but only if people in other uh, in other communities, other other cities, other localities, other states lean in and pay attention to what we've done here. The New York City Racial Justice Commission is a charter revision commission. Mm. Charter, the New York City Charter, is the city's constitution. Just as we have a federal constitution and we have a state constitution, uh, local governments have to operate under uh, certain authorities, authorities granted them by a body of laws. Mm. Here in New York City, it's the New York City Charter. The New York City Charter, our constitution, essentially defines um, what government is, what the powers, the functions, uh, the essential procedures of city government are. Everything from you know, who holds office 
and what the uh, what the roles of those who hold office are, from mayors to city council persons, district persons, uh, borough presidents, to you know city agencies, what their missions are, what their responsibilities are, and how they are to interface with New Yorkers. Every mm. city has a charter. What we did here in New York City was to stand up a commission, a charter revision commission centering on racial justice, the first of its kind in the nation. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the commissioners, of which, uh, you know, Larry Daniel Favors and I are just two. There are nine others who, like us, represent, uh, you know, the, the, the multiculturalism that is New York City, the diversity. We have commissioners who are of Hispanic origin, persons like Larry Daniel Favors and I who, are, you know, have African roots to uh, people who are uh, of of Asian heritage. The desire was to come together. We were given a task of looking at the charter and beginning to think about how do we dismantle structural racism in government functioning Mm. as it's been held up by the charter, by the laws of New York City. How do we begin to dismantle structural racism and advance a vision with real guideposts and real teeth mm. to build about, bring about greater equity for all New Yorkers here in New York City, using race and racial matters as a basis. And right now, you know, that is one of the, the quintessential challenges that is confronting uh, every single city and municipality all across this country. Mm-hmm. This issue of race has come roaring back. Some would say it was only it was only napping. It never actually went away. It just took a quiet little nap in the integration corner. <laughs> and now it is roaring back, uh, fully yeah. empowered, refreshed and ready to pick up where it left off. Can you talk with us about what some of the challenges were on this commission? And, you know, I, I felt some of these challenges quite personally, <laughs> but can you talk with us well, about, because, you know, we, we kind of joked in the beginning uh, with, with some audience members, and by audience folks, I mean people who came to testify at the hearings that we had. We had a ton mm-hmm. of hearings all across the city to hear directly from New Yorkers. And, you know, some of them joked, you know, I know we're, we're trying to solve racism here. And we, we laughed about that because we're, we're not solving right. racism, because that is its own perhaps multi-hundred year project. But what were some of the challenges that you recall us confronting as we were really excited about doing this work and then ran into a couple of of roadblocks that really had to redirect uh, and help us to appropriately limit the scope of what it was we were engaged in? Yes. So the the first I'll share, um, perhaps the most obvious, we were seeking to engage with the community to have their experiences, their lived experiences, inform the proposals that we would ultimately bring forward to the New York City electorate to be voted on this coming November. And uh, we were doing so, you know, in the height of a, a pandemic. And so just, you know, reaching and engaging as many New Yorkers as we desired, especially when having uh, in-person meetings and then sometimes having to pull them back because of a surge in COVID was a problem. But more substantively speaking, um, as as you just spoke to, you know, like trying to end racism, 400 plus years of racism that, you know, that permeates all of our society, that pervades every pillar of our society, not just policing, not just voting access, but every pillar of our society. Trying to do that in just a few months is like trying to boil the ocean. Mm. So, you know, thinking about how could we be most impactful uh, and, and, and be most concrete, uh, most um, deliberative, and most impactful, uh, appreciating that we couldn't do all of it 
all at once was a huge challenge. We found that New Yorkers were bringing to us, um, you know, varied uh, experiences, uh, uh, you know, like a, a multitude of concerns, and they didn't always fit into one neat package, one neat recommendation. And uh, we found ourselves trying to figure out, well, you know, what is most important in this moment? And ultimately what we concluded was that we needed to, the, 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 the best step forward we could take was to reset the foundation for addressing equity in New York City. There were so many one-off issues, specific agency issues, everything from unfair hiring practices to wage segregation, occupation segregation, to inequities that persist in terms of how government cites and stands up, um, more, uh, more attractive programming such as quality hospitals and health clinics to, you know, weird places uh, you know, local jails that people don't want in their neighborhoods or shelters. Those were big issues. You know, whether people could uh, afford, uh, you know, uh, to, to purchase homes and, and, and how government, you know, has set up things historically to keep people from having access to capital, to, you know, to, 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 to grow home ownership. So there were many, many issues of that type. We realized we couldn't do it all, but if we could establish a foundation that would keep equity at the, you know, front and center at all times, then that would be a big, gigantic step forward. The other challenge that we found, and this was perhaps for me the most disappointing, was that whenever we would move and seek to make, uh, a, a, you, know, like, you know, bring about, you know, effective recommendations in a certain place or space, to learn that there were state laws or federal That's right. laws That's right. that kept us from making the changes that we desired. Mm. That, you know, you could seek to do something at the city level, but if state funds were implicated, you know, were involved, right. if the, some, in the space of housing, where so many uh, uh, funds, government funds for affordable and safe housing are, um, are, you know, emanate from the state and from the federal government. And therefore there are laws that attend at those levels. That if you try to affect change at the local level, you're going to come up against some roadblocks at the mm -hmm. state and the federal level. And so you can't do it all at the local level. That was a huge challenge and a huge disappointment. And then tied to that, there were instances, as you may recall, Lorraine, where even when trying to affect change at the city level, we ran into roadblocks from the city's lawyers. That's right. Who would tell us, well, that's not really in the best interest of the city. That might cost the city a lot of money. And it was like, are you kidding me? Mm. Like, here we are trying to make change to bring about equity to upend these structural, systemic laws that have kept people from getting ahead. And now we're being told by government, when we want government to work with us, well, you know, that could really challenge government. Right. Those were some of the biggest challenges, but we pushed on through. And I think that what we've, uh, the result is something that will begin to seed equity mm -hmm. in government functioning in a way that we've never seen before. You know, what we're doing here is not advancing executive orders that can That's be right. changed That's from right. one administrator, you know, in the form of a mayor to the next. Um, we're seeding changes that are not subject to uh, city councils turning over and deciding that they are going to, uh, you know, advance new legislation that can undo the reforms that have already been in place. When you change the charter, you change the foundation. Mm. 
Mm. And it's only, you know, by the people, for the people, people, you know, New York City elected saying we want to do it differently, that it gets to change. You know, I, I will first let me remind folks, you are listening to Larry Daniel Favors, and I'm in conversation with Jennifer Jones Austin as we discuss the work of the New York City Racial Justice Commission, a groundbreaking commission, first of its kind in the nation, which really drew a lot of inspiration from Truth and Reconciliation Commissions we had observed yes. in other uh, locations around the world where they had extreme experience with uh, trauma, mm-hmm. with, with, with racial hierarchies and other forms of oppression. Uh, and we looked at how truth and reconciliation commissions informed the process in South Africa, which remains ongoing, informed the process of how the nation or the world was able to respond uh, to what happened in Nazi Germany. And so uh, bringing those, the lessons from those and other similar commissions into this country for such a time as this was such Mm -hmm. a, you know, and, and, you know, uh, this is not an opportunity. I'm not here to, to criticize or uplift any individual mayor, but I do want to say that in a Appointing this commission and bringing this body together, I am appreciative for uh, Mayor Bill, former Mayor Bill de Blasio's uh, willingness to really speak to what was happening in that moment. Uh, this was really uh, spearheaded by the the people taking to the streets in the summer of 2020, which I laughingly call America's Great Racial Awakening or turning over into the other side of sleep. Uh, and so we had international <laughs> models for what it was that we were yeah. trying to do. But as you rightly point out, we quickly realized that it's one thing to make change at or to seek to make change at a particular level of government. But then when you think about all of the interlaying or interplaying layers of government at one time jennifer i remember saying it's really i knew this was intentional but this was really intentionally well done to make social change and equity that much more difficult to reach and and we saw what that looked like in real time now as a result of this process though these months of hearings uh the testimonies that people were able to give in person virtually uh in every single borough uh with different groups we listened to uh to thought leaders and to subject matter experts can can you talk about the the scope of the research that went into what actually uh, ended up in culminating into three ballot proposals uh, that will be the next phase of this work? Well, we didn't have a lot of time to stand up the commission, but I, I do have to credit uh, our executive director, uh, a woman by the name of Anusha Venkatraman, yes. who assembled a dynamic team. I mean, yes, we did. had uh, phenomenal policy people and, um, and and community organizers, people who wanted to hear from people with, uh, you know, lived experiences we keep talking about. They wanted to talk to the community. And then what the policy persons did, you know, working alongside the commissioners, was to translate those lived experiences into, you know, like, you know, looking at the systemic issues, be they policy or legislation. And, 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 and to figure out ways to affect the changes that were necessary. Uh, what I found most uh, helpful was that at every turn, what those around the table understood was that um, these laws, as you just spoke to, uh, that had been on the books for now centuries, mm. were designed as the general, one of the, one of the council uh, members, council with an SEL, uh, 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 for the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, advised or, or, or reminded or, I should say, admonished us. The warning was, remember that structural racism, 
that all of these foundational documents, constitutions and charters, were created by people designed with the intent of always preserving and maintaining their privileged power base. Mm. And so you can never for a moment think that there was anything that was truly altruistic and was concerned about of the people for the people at any given turn. Always keep in mind that the people who created these documents wanted to preserve power for themselves. Mm. And so the work that we had to do, working with the dynamic policy team, with thought leaders from around the country, thought leaders here in New York City, including persons in the community, striving every single day, Mm. you know, trying to stand up against this system. What we had to do was to look at these issues up and down and all around and figure out what were the cracks, if you will. You couldn't just advance a simple change because you knew that it had to be nuanced because, you know, racism is like water. It's going to find the cracks Mm. wherever it can. It will, as we're seeing right now with efforts to dismantle voting rights, beginning with what was done, you know, well before Shelby versus Holder. You know, people went to work. With the Voting Rights Act of 1965, they began working to undo that way back then and are proving more and more successful every day. Racism is going to find the cracks. And we worked with people who were able to translate the experiences people were bringing to the table, looking at the policies and the systems that are in place, and then figuring out how to unpack them structurally. Mm. And that is that is a lot of work. It took a lot of work. It was a lot of work and it was completely worthwhile. And and now the public gets to weigh in. Right. So, guys, remember, we talk yeah. about how democracy is participatory. At least this version of democracy is supposed to be participatory. So all this work that went into it, and it was work. Anusha, uh, Harold, Rob, stay, I mean, everyone. <laughs> I, I should even see. That's the problem when you start naming names, Jennifer. You, you know this. So we know you, it. You, you're not no, supposed I'm to have a name names. They're you know, all amazing. The church, they're always calling names and forgetting somebody and getting in trouble. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, but they're all amazing. And. There was so much effort that went into getting to this point, and yet it's not over. We were uh, able no. to, to finalize and settle on three key provisions. And again, remember, we couldn't solve racism in just a few months. We, we, we thought we might. I'm kidding. We knew we couldn't. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't solve racism in just a few months. <laughs> and we couldn't. Uh, we, we also could not completely rewrite the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages right. in our city constitution in a few months. So we were time barred. We were resource limited. And yet we were able to come up with these three proposals that are set if they are adopted. And here's where the people participatory portion comes in because these proposals are now ballot proposals and they are going to go on the November ballot. And as much work that went into this, Jennifer, as amazing as that work was, uh, and it it is one of the highlights of my professional career to have been engaged with this commission, if those ballot proposals don't get voted into being by the voters, that a lot of that work stops there. Can you talk with us about what you know, those ballot proposals oof. were and, and what we now must do in terms of not just educating all of every folks in the audience, but we also have to now educate the voters in our jurisdiction to understand these proposals and then actually vote them into law should they agree that this is the vision that for New York City that they want to see in, in implemented? Lori, all that you said, you know, I, I just want to uh, just quickly want to say true words have never been spoken. Mm. Uh, you know, we it was a heavy lift to get to this point, but lift is just as heavy, if not more. 
Uh, I remember, you know, years ago someone saying to me, you know, you got to keep in mind that when you do good, not everybody wants you to succeed. Not everybody wants you to win. And so there are many people in our city and across this nation who um, are, are sincere about centering on equity and ensuring that people have true access to opportunity to really achieve, that we level the playing field. But there are many, many people as well who don't want to see that. You know, racism has been proven a powerful tool mm. for 400 plus years in ensuring that certain people will not have access, will not have the same opportunities. And those people are still living and thriving throughout our country. And they're here in New York City as well. And so getting these ballot measures uh, passed is not just a slam dunk because there are going to be efforts to try to derail these proposals from actually becoming law, becoming a part of the charter. Let me tell you what these proposals are. The first is a preamble, a statement of values and beliefs that center on what every New Yorker, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, immigration status, should be able to expect from its government with respect to city government policy and functioning. It focuses on you know, everything from people having the resources to, pros- uh, to prosper economically. You know, it centers on culturally relevant child and youth supports, ensuring that everybody has culturally responsive, compassionate health, trauma, mental health care, mm-hmm. access to participate meaningfully in government uh, functioning and decision-making. And the list goes on and on. We felt it important to establish this preamble so that, you know, it's essentially it's a guidepost for city government, how it should be engaging with all New Yorkers. Hmm. Then we, the second proposal centers on establishing in perpetuity an Office of Racial Equity with accountability measures attached to it. The Office of Racial Equity would be, uh, would be responsible for, for uh, putting forth every two years a citywide equity plan that would require the mayor to ensure that every single agency is centering on the development of goals and strategies with measurable outcomes for advancing racial equity and justice. It would look at key indicators, neighborhood label, neighborhood metrics. It would look at hiring practices, promotion practices. It would look at wage inequity, wage disparity, occupation segregation, uh, and, and, and marginalization. And it would all roll up into a biennial progress report. One year you'd have a plan. The next year you'd have a progress report. Accompanying it, the complement, would be a racial equity commission. Mm. made up of everyday New Yorkers who have been burdened with inequity to essentially hold the city government accountable. And let me just say here something that people don't necessarily lean into. Mayors can establish executive orders to do something like this. They can say it's a policy initiative. It's Mm. a programmatic, programmatic initiative. But the mayors that come behind them could undo those executive orders, those initiatives. When you embed this in the charter, it becomes a core function of government. Like you have to have fire departments. You've got to have a health department. You have Mm -hmm. to have, well, somewhat question, but right now we've got a police department. (laughs) You would have the governor, the New York City government would have to have an office, office of racial equity. That's Mm -hmm. powerful. It's so important. And the last proposal 
proposal would be to establish a true cost of living measure. And, you know, every time I think about this one, if it is implemented, it, be, it, you know, it has the potential to give individuals agency mm. in terms of, you know, like centering on, you know, what it costs to make ends meet and what that does for them in centering on dig- dignity rather than deprivation. Mm. The federal poverty measure says that for a family of three, a mother and two children, living anywhere in the United States, that mother, let's say it's a, uh, that, that mother, that father, needs only $21,800 to technically not live in poverty. Mm. But the true cost of living for a mother with two young children in the most, you know, what is believed to be the most affordable borough in New York City, the Bronx, the true cost of living when you account for housing, food supports, transportation, health care, um, you know, child care, incidental health costs, is a minimum of $95,000. Oh, my God. $95,000. The federal poverty level essentially allows this nation to allow for a minimum wage of $7.25 a year when annual, annualized, that's just $15,000. Mm. So that mother in the Bronx is just making minimum wage, and here in New York it's now $15. That's $30,000. But if the true cost of living is $95,000, she's always operating at a deficit, always trying to catch up. And and, and, and income supports like childcare, housing, food supports, cash assistance are based off of that federal poverty level and really only go to 200% of poverty. So for a family of three, 21,800 times two is a little more than $43,000. If that mother's making 55000 she's above the federal poverty level at 100%, but she needs 95000 to make ends meet. Wow. She's got a gap, a huge gap, that she can't fill. Mm. A true cost of living actually gives us a real sense of what it costs to make ends meet. And then we'll hopefully could, if it's passed, give people greater agency. Right. So these proposals only become law if New Yorkers come out and vote for them. You can vote for each one individually. You can vote for all three. They only become law and begin to change New York City and then hopefully the nation Mm. if they're passed. Wow. And that, like many of the best things happening in this country, <laughs> it, it requires the people. It absolutely requires the people. That's I, right. you know, and, and what's crazy to me is I remember sitting in hearings and, and in those conversations uh, about the the true cost of living, and and my mind sort of going back to my own experiences with poverty as a child, and, mm-hmm. and being a military family that had to live in a shelter for a period of time, and being a military mm-hmm. family, and you know, I'm, I'm dating myself. A military right now. family. A military family with food stamps, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the cute little EBT mm-hmm. cards that people have now. It was the paper colored coupon 
lines that you yeah. had to pull out of the book that were very embarrassing for a young Loretta and your favorites. So when you think about that true cost of living, right now there are uh, staff attorneys in the city of New York who are striving yeah. for a salary of $90,000. To have the true cost of living for this single mom of two actually be $90,000 and thinking about the complete discrepancy that exists between her lived experience and our government's accounting for the needs that she and that family have, yes. that is, it's mind boggling. It's absolutely mind boggling. And not to pat us on the back, but I'm going to do it. It also speaks to just how damn important this work really has yeah. been and how critical it is that it not just sit in New York City. This must spread. We need uh, racial justice commissions established in every jurisdiction that can sustain yes. them. And even the ones that don't think they can sustain them, y'all definitely need it because this is what it looks like. Structural racism isn't just going to end because we had a great protest together and we sang songs in Kumbaya at the end of it uh, while chanting in our agreement right. that Black Lives Matter. It's going to require government. It's going to require the dismantling dismantling of these structures with uh, the same type of precise surgical precision that uh, our, our uh, voter suppressors use in states like North Carolina. Thank you to the court for giving us that language. We are going to be have to be as surgically precise at extricating or explicating uh, uh, white supremacist structures and the laws that protect them from our society as well. Madam Chair, I am so grateful yeah. for, th for this work and that you led us in this effort in a masterful way. Uh, I hope we can, we can, yes, teamwork, teamwork. It does make the dream work. And, and I know that we're going to be bringing on other commissioners as well to talk even more about this because Wonderful. this is not going away. This is something that we are going mm -hmm. to have to do. Uh, one of the guests we had on earlier said we talk about civil rights organizers all the time, but there are white supremacist organizers as well. And the work Ooh. of organizing to ensure we are doing everything we can, manipulating every lever that we can in order to keep people safe and expand opportunity and equity access, that is going to take yes. intentional work. Thank you so much for being with us today. I am today. so I really thankful. Appreciate having I'm you. so thankful for you. So grateful for you and so appreciative of this opportunity. We're punching back at the root of racism.